0: Now here's your host of Sound Off Brad Bennett
1: Well Northlanders uh, as you are aware today Wednesday the last Wednesday of every month is the day that we have Peter Wood come in and I'll tell you Peter you've given us some great shows over the years uh you you enlighten us you educate us about the logging industry the trucking industry a lot about uh what kind of products are out there. But I think you outdid yourself today. I'm going to just turn it over to you to let you introduce your guests, and uh, I think we're going to have an amazing show.
2: Well, thank you, Brad, for and folks out there willing to listen and take time out of your day and listen about the timber industry and other industries. And today, <clears throat> today folks, it's an honor to have these folks on. They're from uh, Navistar out of Lisley, I think I'm going to butcher that up, Illinois, about 40 miles west of Chicago. And I've been corresponding back and forth with a guy by the name of Bob Mann, Assistant General Manager Vocational, and, and uh, talking about International and Navistar and all their all the stuff going on. And folks, who sit back and listen. It's really interesting to listen from a manufacturer standpoint, why what goes on with these folks, why they do what they do. Uh, the the incredible networking that they have, and it's I'm just an honor to have these folks on. And, and, and Bob, Bob, are you there?
0: Yes, I am, Peter.
2: Great, great. You want to introduce all the folks with you that you sure. got there? That'd be great.
0: Sure. So, so sitting with us is Mark Stasel. Mark is is the general manager of the vocational business. I've got Darren Gosby, who's our VP of drivetrain powertrain, and I have Mike Noonan, who does all of our compliance work.
2: So, so you got the heavy hitters here today. Here. Yeah. you got the heavy hitters. Uh, would you want to hit a little brief history of international or of, about you guys there so we get a little establishment here? That'd be great.
3: Yeah, I'd be glad to do that. This is Mark Stasel. Yeah, so we are part of Navistar, and Navistar was better known as International Harvester in the past until 1986, back when we changed our name to Navistar. Uh, one time we were in a lot of different industries, ag, construction, trucking, et cetera. We're really focused on trucking today. And um, we became uh, part of the Volkswagen Group in 2021. In fact, in July of 21, we became part of a company called Trayton, which is uh, mainly owned by Volkswagen. A little bit of it's out uh, publicly owned, too. But uh, we and MAN in Germany and Scania in Sweden are all part of Trayton. So we're part of a much larger organization now, and we're really happy to be on the call here today.
2: That's huge. That's huge. Uh, that, uh, just real quick, is that all owned by just one family, or is it owned by multi, or is it uh, publicly traded? Just for quick. So,
4: the, yeah, the, the VW Group, uh, which includes actually all of the automotive brands that most people are familiar with, along with the commercial vehicle brands that Mark just mentioned, um, is owned by one family.
3: Right. Wow. Was a public company they spun off, it, but Volkswagen owns 85% of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's some out there, some public float out there.
2: Very impressive, guys, very impressive. Um, this is tailored more towards the timber industry, okay, uh, and you build trucks that go all over the world and all over the country. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on uh, international and what it takes and go, just go down the road of that a little bit for the folks out there?
0: Sure, so Peter, some of the things you, you and I have talked about in the past is about log trucks and how they're all different, right? They may look the same, but and they may be the same model, but they all do different things based on what state they operate in, the weight laws, length laws. Um, we just finished updating our HX, relaunched a new HX. Um, I think you have an old International, you have like a 76-4300 in your fleet uh, and an HX, but... Uh, that is our as our flagship for the logging business um, it is used throughout the US and Canada um, and it has a, a wide variation of axles and transmissions and uh, most of them are are either our a26 engine or the Cummins X15 um, but they're all very different based on the job that they're gonna do um, and and that's kinda why we've assembled Darren and Mike in here because you know it's kind of there's what we do today, but on the not too distant in the horizon, uh, things are going to change, right? We have we have a lot of missions and a lot of things going on, but um, would hopefully we, that kind of kind of gets us in the right direction here. With
2: would you go, would you be willing to elaborate on that a little bit? Well, when you brought sure. it up as emissions and carb and all that, what what, what is steering the ship here, or is it uh, just uh, could you elaborate on that guys sure yeah this is Mike Noon, and I'll jump in there um, so the question is is what's
5: steering the ship well um, an interesting question you posed but I, I would say that it starts with the EPA and the products that we're talking about specifically today in logging trucks uh, what governs from a regulatory perspective those products are powertrain certification requirements and vehicle certification requirements um, we have Significant regulations that are headed our way through both the EPA and the state of California. And those regulations are targeting uh, specifically, you know, not just the passenger car industry, but also the heavy-duty industry. They're, they're targeting fuel economy and emissions performance at a very significant level. Um, so uh, the expectations from these regulations is that you're going to see powertrains, which are, um, I think we would argue, and Darren, you can jump in here, but we'll argue are at the peak efficiency that you could expect to see out of conventional applications, and there's also regulations which are new, which would be somewhat, um, maybe of somewhat of interest to you in this call, Uh, but these new regulations will start forcing our hand into electrification at scale. Um, This will be done at both the state level and at the national level through various regulations of greenhouse gas. So, it's a very dynamic environment we're in right now, and that's a a lot of product development will, will be taken and will be required to get there.
3: Yeah, I think, Peter, we're going to see more change in the next 10 years in powertrains than I've seen in my whole career at Navistar. So, you know, probably during most of my 36 years here, we've, you know, continuously been up against tougher diesel emission regulations over time, et cetera. But, you know, now when you're going to see the reintroduction of gasoline engines, you're going to see electric vehicles, a lot of different ways to meet zero emissions type laws. So it's, it's going to be quite a discontinuity the next 10 years,
2: what's going to go on. Hold, hold, think, uh, hold on here one second. Gasoline motors being put back in big semis, actually? Is that what you're saying?
3: I, I think you'll see them more in the
2: smaller, like a medium-duty
3: type oh. truck, school oh. buses, things like that. But gotcha. they'll be used, you know, in a, in a place where diesels are going to be hard to certify in the future. So you'll see gasoline engines uh, in some of those. We put them in our school buses today.
4: But oh, okay. actually, Mark, I mean, I, I want to elaborate more because huh? now we've started down this path. If you think about the fact today it's traditionally just diesel, we will see natural gas, we will see propane, we will see hydrogen, we will see gasoline, we will see battery electric, and at some point we will see fuel cell electric vehicles. So you're talking seven different propulsion types. Within the next, <laughs> next 10 years. Within the next 10 yeah, years. the next yep. 10 years.
2: Right. Wow. 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Peter, uh, this is Brad Bennett, uh, uh, and Peter has always brought in such interesting people. But, Bob, I don't know if you or who wants to address this, but when Peter uh, said he was bringing you 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 guys in to talk about uh, new, new variations for trucks and all that, I've often wondered, are we going to be able to get an electric battery-operated truck that's going to be heavy-duty enough to haul a load of logs, or are you looking at different forms for that?
4: So let me jump in. This is Darren Goldstein. Uh, let me jump in and, and, and kind of give you an answer to that question. Um, the one thing I'll say is when you think about electric powertrains, you have to think about the type of duty cycle that the that the vehicle experiences. One of the most important things about uh, having electric vehicles, is that you you must obviously must be able to charge them. They're not as easy to refuel currently as, as a liquid or a gaseous-fueled engine, but they have to right. be able to be refueled. And nine times out of ten, that requires some form of return to base activity. So our initial foray into electric powertrains has been within the school bus, obviously because the school bus goes out in the morning, comes back during the day, goes out in the afternoon, comes back in the evening, and then it sits overnight. Those opportunities to charge are significant and the the routes are very predictive, the payloads are very predictive, as is the opportunity to actually charge. So all in all, it makes a very neat opportunity for electric vehicle technology. The same with medium duty. A lot of medium duty trucks do very similar things. They leave in the morning, they do a distribution, maybe they drop off packages or they, they go to a work site, but at the end they come back to base and then they sit for 12 hours or so. So they have a golden opportunity for, to be recharged. But as we start to look into the, to the severe domain or into even to the on-highway tractor domain, that's when things start to look a little bit different because the opportunities to charge aren't quite so frequent. So you have to put more batteries on board the vehicle. And when you start thinking about the trade-off between the additional weight that comes with the electric propulsion system versus the diesel and where would you find the charges to be able to charge the vehicle? These are really the sorts exactly. of questions you need to understand before you move. I'll give you a couple of figures just to think about. If you take one of our on-highway tractors today, our LT day cab with an X-15 Cummins engine with dual 80-gallon tanks, that weighs approximately seventeen, seventeen and a half thousand pounds. If you took a very similar tractor, but you added an electric propulsion system to it, It would come out to about twenty-five thousand pounds. So you're looking at a seven and a half thousand pound increase in weight, but your range from full tanks would be about thousand eleven hundred miles. That drops down to about two hundred and fifty with the batteries. So you can see here now why your your charging infrastructure and where you refuel is now so much more critical for the application that that you're considering. So for example, in, in in this particular case we're talking login. There aren't many charges in the forest, and I doubt there are many charges in the paper mill or in in, in the woodmill.' So
1: it's probably going That's be what I was that thinking. That's what I was thinking, Darren. Aren't aren't too many trees out there you can plug into? <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. <laughs> if we could, wow, we'd really have something. Yep.
2: Well, there's a bit of a weight difference there from our standpoint, and then uh, the charging situation, the range, and that would be also a, a very much on a logger's mind. Um, then the other thing would be the upkeep and cost, because we know what the diesels, we know what the trucks, we know all that stuff from years gone by, what it really takes. But now we're getting in an avenue. I guess it. <clears throat> my thought is coming to this is, would it be possible to make some kind of fuel cell that you get these trucks down to competitive, like a diesel motor and a truck? Do you think that's yeah. even possible in the future, I'm talking?
4: No, I mean, fuel cell technology is, is a good way around um, having to carry significant batteries, because your hydrogen gas storage becomes your energy storage still on the vehicle. And it it is a a very good technology when you consider the fact that it reduces the the vehicle weight significantly, and it does give a lot more confidence. But the problem with with hydrogen fuel cells today is there's no hydrogen infrastructure, so there's no hydrogen fuel pumps. And that's something that in in the fullness of time, I'm sure, will be addressed. Uh, But it is a major uh, challenge for that particular technology today.
1: We are a uh, commercial radio station, so we do have to take an occasional break here, and we're at that point now. And then we can come back and talk a little bit more about uh, some of the changes that will happen over the next 10 years. Giant Redwood, the larch, the fir, the mighty Scotch pine, the smell of fresh-cut timber, the crash of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, We'd sing, sing, sing. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. Well, guys, I I know you won't believe this, but that's actually Peter singing that song. We always I, we always know, kid I, him about I, that. I
0: recognize <laughs> the accent. It just, it sounds exactly like
2: Peter. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, uh, Peter, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but I have one other question that I. You know, international has always been looked at, I think, by the trucking industry as a very dependable, you know, first-class operation. Are you guys worried about when you start changing over to some of these new technologies that you're going to be able to keep keep that same dependability that same demand performance on demand type thing available uh, what's hap- well, play?
2: from our standpoint folks what it is is not knowing we really don't know we're not we're not these yeah. engineers like these guys like uh like Bob, Mark, Mike and Darren we're, we're we're not them because they they can they're the ones that are building this stuff they're the ones that are engineering it they're the ones that get it going from our sta- from our standpoint it 's we don 't understand it, you know maybe a few guys who will here and there, but it gets kind of intimidating a little bit, you could say because um, it 's kind of like when the folks got done with the teamsters with the horses and they went to gasoline motors and they were intimidated too. But I think the next generation is going to really benefit from all this great technology uh, but from our from my standpoint, you know you 're looking at boy, am I even going to understand how to turn the key on, which probably won 't even exist in the future but uh, But back to the folks from from navistar is uh the changes in the future guys what you're hinting on that could we elaborate a little bit on that because i find it just fascinating like what do you see coming more of uh how how does somebody like international uh, navistar and uh, actually it's all outfits that build any piece of equipment that are challenged with this to keep pushing that envelope more and more
5: yeah and so let me let me help maybe calm the nerves here a little bit because you know, personally I'm involved in a lot of conversations with customers that are and I'm hearing the same message you just delivered here firsthand. so let let's maybe spend a quick second in talking about what the regulation is actually driving from a technology perspective. Then I'll let the guys here jump into the actual technologies we're looking at. Um, but the good news from a, a logging perspective is that the products we're talking about here today, and I think Darren alluded to this, they're not necessarily conducive to making the conversion in the near term or immediately. The regulations, as they're as they're moving their way in, they're, they're fleet-average-based fuel economy targets. That's the way to look at it. So from a Navistar perspective, we'll be looking at products right away, starting actually two years ago, we first started introducing electric vehicles, and we're going to continue to introduce new electric vehicle applications, but we're going to do it in such a way into segments that are conducive for that, for the adoption, where the infrastructure is already in place, where we've worked with customers to make sure they understand exactly, to your point, how to turn the key. The... The regulations allow for that level of flexibility, and they're actually targeting segments which are, as I mentioned, more conducive for that. There are certain applications, you know, quite frankly, that are just not ready for it yet. Uh, So maybe the next question you would be asking is, well, when would the regulation force us to do that? And and honestly, the ramp-up rate is looking closer to 2040, somewhere between 25 and 2040 before we're mandated to actually make that transition in that space.
3: But yeah. I'll turn it over to these guys. And I'll talk Maybe about I'll add the from a business perspective. You know, we think in the vocational business or severe business, however you want to call it, where you where you have logging and government trucks, you know, and utility trucks and all these types of things. You know, we believe only 40 to 50 percent of that business will be electric by 2035. So we're going to have diesel engines around for a long time in segments like that. You know, you asked about how can we make sure it's reliable and things. We have to. You know, that's why it costs so much money to do these things. Because we have to test everything, we have to design it, we have to verify it. Our, our, our customers, especially in the vocational world, you know, the thing they really need from us is uptime, right? So, you know, f- some of them don't even worry as much about fuel economy and things as an on highway hauler will because they don't do as so many miles per year, but they really care about uptime because they've got an expensive piece of equipment on the back of their truck a lot of times, and they don't want that thing to be down. If, they, if the truck's down, their business is down. So, we, we certainly won't bring out anything before it's ready. Uh, but but there is gonna be change. But like like, um, like we said, it's not like the passenger car business. You know, passenger cars all kind of do the same thing. Trucks don't, they're in different applications and every one of those segments will have times where it's ready for electric uh, or gasoline or whatever, but it won't in some segments won't be ready for a long time. And
4: I think okay, and that- it's
3: probably as I say it's probably fair I mean to elaborate a little bit more
4: beyond just the emissions side. I mean Mike picked up on Obviously, some of the major driving factors to, to force change specifically in the powertrain, but there are other regulations around vehicle safety that are also introducing new technology and new driver aids, also on, really on highway in the, the, the Class 8 tractor-trailer combinations, but those technologies will also filter out into all, all segments of the industry. Driver support, things like um, advanced emergency braking or collision mitigation systems, those technologies are also going to make it out through, as I said, through all of our products as uh, as the market evolves over time. So the idea here is Mark said we won't be launching products unless they're ready. We're also going to be launching products that make the driver's task a lot easier.
2: Are you talking like almost a self-driving vehicle, or is it just where it monitors accident coming, the brakes applied style, or wh- wh- what are you talking on that? I am,
4: I am definitely not talking self-driving vehicles. I'm talking about systems that really help the driver, and these are things like, I mean, everybody has anti-lock brakes today. That's just one example of a system that helps the driver. Emergency braking comes in when a situation could occur that the driver wasn't, Prepared for, or wasn't reacting fast enough to, and you get emergency braking like that. Things like lane keeping assist as well, other safety features that will keep the vehicle between the two white lines. It's we kind of follow in the passenger car industry, but at some point I think we will, as Mark said, we will speed up quite quickly and become uh, almost in parallel with new technology introduction as to what you will see in the passenger car world.
2: Sure. I, I got a quick question on this. Is um... This is all in the United States. Are other countries uh, kind of the same way? I, I don't have no clue. I've never been all outside the United States. But are other countries the same way or they're, they're looking at all the exact same stuff? Or are they behind 10 years or something like that?
3: Uh, well, right? yeah, I mean, the so developed countries are, I think, are moving right with us, you know, for the most part on emission regulations, safety regulations, et cetera. But you do find countries in the world that are several emission levels back and, and won't adopt some of these safety things as quickly.
4: I think, yeah, and Mike, you can probably elaborate more on this, but Western Europe and the U.S. Mm-hmm. are probably leading the world yes. when it comes to the introduction of, of all of these new technologies and these changes, both in the regulatory space as well as in the driver convenience and driver assistance space.
5: Yeah, in, the, in the regulatory world, for the past few years in dealing with the various agencies globally, we considered it the race to zero. And it was between China, Europe, and North America who would have the most stringent regulation the fastest. And it was almost a compet- competition between the agencies. Um, we are the first to actually have our regulations officially adopted, but I can tell you Europe is right there with us. Extremely stringent. They're pushing for 100% electrification in the very near future. In fact, they may be moving faster than us because if you look at just from a geographical perspective, they're more conducive to that. We have a, a very vast array or a large span that we have to have, make sure infrastructure is in place for that they don't have to deal with. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a very dynamic globally, not just domestically.
1: Well, guys, we have to uh, take our CBS News break. Uh, give us a minute or two, and then we'll come back. More very interesting show today. So we'll be right back, Katie AL. Well, Peter, um, Peter, you got yourself a real show here today. One of, the, one of the things I was very glad to hear, I think it was Darren mentioned it, though, is that uh, International is not looking to see, right now anyway, in the near distant future, uh, driverless trucks filling the highway. I don't think that the general public is ready for that, but you think that some of that technology is where we're going to be going with so much of the new improvements uh, along the way?
2: That'd be a good question for those guys because they're the ones that actually see the future a little bit better than I do by a bit.
4: Yeah, yeah and, and actually it's a, it's a really good question because a lot of the technologies that are being developed and refined for what we call Level 4 autonomy are actually starting to make their way through into the products of, of today and tomorrow. And those are sorts of the safety systems that I talked about um, earlier on. So, for example, lane centering or lane keeping, or collision mitigation systems, or emergency braking. A lot of the vision systems that use camera, or LIDAR, or even radar, that identify vehicles around, say, a tractor-trailer combination, as an example. And those sorts of technologies are coming ahead of autonomy, and they were developed for the autonomous programs, but they're actually, they are actually found application with, with driver's trucks. So yes, that's a very good question and we will start to see that in in the coming uh, coming years.
2: That is extremely impressive how it can hold that how can it read the lines how can it read that stuff up here we got snow on the ground. It's amazing that you can even yeah. think of something like that.
4: Well, and it's okay, so <laughs> you you've said something there which is actually really really important and that is if if humans can't see it then obviously cameras can't see it. So with with almost like direct vision systems, if you can't see the lines on the road, then those systems will default off and um, they, they won't be operational. We do, as part of some of the testing, we've looked at what sort of, of weather situations can force particular systems to turn off. And a good example is lane centering or lane keeping when there's snow on the road, because it's not possible to see those lanes. Uh, but with with the move towards autonomy, Uh, We will see greater use of GPS positioning. We will see greater use of what we call dead reckoning and very accurate maps that we will use moving forward. So that not only can we see where we are, but we know where we are physically through different sensors. But that is a long, long way off.
2: Even to think on it, it's impressive to me because it's like, wow, it's so futuristic, yet it's coming rapidly fast. Um, Got a quick question on state regulations. Each state is different. Could you elaborate a little bit on how it seems like California does things and other people want to follow? Maybe we don't want to follow California, some of us. But uh, would you elaborate a little bit on that, on those state well, regulations? I'll, I'll, leave you, I'll leave that to you. There are what, guys?
5: Stop California. But, um, you no, you did point out a, a really important point with respect to regulations. And actually, the state of California is the only other regulatory agency with the authority to actually generate their own emissions-based regulations. And in fact, that's part of what we're actually seeing. Some of the dynamic we're seeing at play starting in 24 is the fact that they've introduced new regulations before the EPA has. Um, and there are multiple states that are or actively looking into whether or not they want to adopt. Now, I'll just mention there's two main regulations that they're looking at. One is the an emissions-based regulation, and the other one is more of an, a, 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 a zero emissions-based sales and purchase mandate type regulation. So depending on which which regulation uh, the state's looking into, there there are options available. Um, I think one thing I will state is we do know there are a few states that have adopted going into 24. I don't believe Minnesota's one of them at this point, but what we're seeing is a lot of states are watching to see what happens in California in 24. So I would strongly suggest watch to see what happens to the heavy duty industry in 24 from a product availability perspective. From a regulatory implementation standpoint, and it should be a pretty good indicator as where you could head if you were to choose to adopt such regulations. Either way, uh, I think, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, that we'll have products available for those markets. But um, specific to the logging industry, um, yeah, I think that the limitations are there with those regulations, which would would basically mean we would have to continue with the conventional powertrain solutions in the short term.
0: Well, I mentioned the, the source power.
5: On the yeah, so um, specific to a California regulation, there are certain exemptions um, or provisions within the rules which enable certain applications to be exempt from the immediate mandate of, of, of basically they don't want to shut down an industry. So there are there's an exemption within the California rule that uh, power ratings above 525 horsepower um, are exempt from the lower emission standards in limited volumes.
2: Oh, so, hold yeah. on, you there, opened up a good can of worms here for me. <laughs> so if I order a truck at about 650 horse. What, do I, what yeah. do I don't have to have on it?
5: Well, it's not quite that simple. Um, the, the way the rules applied is at a minimum you'd be subject to the standards that are in place today, and you'd only be able to buy volumes that are basically what you had bought previously. So it's not as if you could you know, buy three 600-horsepower units today and then tomorrow decide to buy 50. They would look back and say, wait, historically you've only bought three, so you're, you're subject to previous okay. uh, purchasing behaviors.
2: <laughs> well you got the gears turning fast there now <laughs> 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 oh well guys. um what what do you what do you oh, i imagine all manufacturers no matter what it is are underneath the exact same thing as far it must be always the exhaust pipe in life it seems like and, and um if you keep pushing that envelope can society, as from what you're seeing, can society as a whole keep up? Because that's a big concern for us. Can we afford to do it? You know, you know what I'm saying, guys. Yeah, mm-hmm.
4: yeah. Well, I, I will say, from a technology perspective, focusing on what we need to do to our engines to make them compliant to the newly released 27 regulation, some of those technologies are getting pretty exotic, and. I mean, we're talking getting down to near zero uh, on oxides of nitrogen. And the the sorts of technologies that we've been putting into the heavy-duty diesels that have to last upwards of of a million miles, it's kind of the sort of technology you would have seen in gasoline engines currently today. So kind of sort of thing you see in passenger car today. But we have to make it last considerably longer. And that comes at, at a cost. I mean, we have to do billions of miles of validation, hundreds of thousands of hours of validation on engine dynos,
2: and none of that comes for free. Yeah, somebody has to pay the bill, and you guys are not, you want to stay in business just like all of us want to stay in business. So it sounds like you've got a major, major juggling act all the time to watch your costs as well as what your product is being coming out with.
3: Yep, exactly right. Yeah, that's right. From the business side, uh, that's one of my worries consistently. But I will say, You know, I'm the one that made the comment there'll be next 10 years, you know, more change than I've ever seen. However, in the past, you know, every change we got to, for a while, it always looked like it was really going to be ugly. We didn't know how we were going to do it. We didn't know how we would pay for it. And we found a way. So we continue to evolve. We continue to develop new technology. You know, we have swung more of our resources into these areas that we know are going to be tough going forward. And so I'm confident we'll find a way like we always have in the past. It's just that we're going to have more of that stuff going on in the next 10 years than we ever have before. I think the auto companies, you know, for instance, had a nice way that they could, some of them just got out of large sedans, which helped them fund all their work on electric and some of the other things they had to do. We're not that lucky. We don't have anything we want to get out of. But, uh, but we have to be careful where we put our resources and make sure we keep developing the technologies. So when they are needed, they are cost-effective too.
4: Yeah. I mean, just to elaborate a little bit more on that, I mean, from the business side, Mark puts a lot of, of a lot of pressure on the engineering team for total cost of ownership, because um, while we're being squeezed to meet the emissions from one side, we're also being squeezed to be more fuel efficient from the other. So total cost of ownership, not only do we have to take in the initial purchase price, but we need to look at uptime, how, how, how many times the, the vehicle's down, how much fuel and death the vehicle requires to perform its its normal operation as well as the initial investment. And averaged over the life of the vehicle, I mean, those are the sorts of areas that we focus on on significantly.
3: And is the technology good enough that the vehicle have good residual value for someone as well, right? So we have to make sure it's not only good for the first owner, but it's good for the second or third owner. So there's a lot of things to go into the equation. Well, and, and for this market, for an electric vehicle market to actually observe sales at scale across the board. Everything
5: they just said has to be true because today as it stands, back to the state requirements, most vehicles we sell are heavily incentivized, whether it be the states or the the government, uh, you know, the the U.S. government. So we we really, what we need to do is we need to get to a point where those incentives are no longer required and you can walk in and buy a vehicle and know that it's equivalent to a conventional powertrain. That's when we'll
4: see scale.
1: Guys, we have to uh we have to take one more break here and we talk to a sponsor and then do our Minnesota news break, but maybe when we're away uh, you can think I when I'm listening to your discussions here this morning, I'm thinking that we may see changes kind of come in waves, almost like we do with cars now. I I drive a car currently that is a hybrid. In other words, it it uh, when I pull up to a stop sign, I stop. It cuts. uh, It it stops spending, or I should say, charging uh, my gas. There's no longer gas, but it runs on a battery while I'm stopped. But when I step on the accelerator again, it goes back to gas. So, are are we going to see? some changes like that. Maybe we can talk about stuff like that when we come back
3: after this break. KDAL time, 1254 National Weather Service in Duluth. Uh, light snow falling, flurries almost, and 25 degrees. Bradley?
1: Well, uh, uh, Peter, we could probably go on for another hour here. This is very interesting. But uh, le- let's continue the conversation about uh, some of these changes that we're going to see in the near distant future and how that might affect logging people over the road truckers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, take it away.
2: It, uh, I think it will affect everyone, not just us. It's just that I stand, I look at our standpoint all the time, folks. But as far as it's going to affect everyone, just go to a grocery store and see what it costs now compared to 10 years ago. All this has to be paid yeah. from somebody, and it does. It does. But <clears throat> I was thinking during break there a little bit, uh, guys from Navistar, um, Incentiveness in it, and it seems like everything's kind of pushing more towards if you're like 30 years old or younger, or maybe a little bit younger than that. Where those younger adults and kids, children that are still in school, they grow up with this and they probably will grab it way faster than anybody, and maybe they'll embrace it. For me, it gets a little bit tougher because a more older school, black coal rolling, older truck style thinking. When, when you say zero emissions, uh, like the truck we have, our newest one is already a 2016 International. That thing, still the exhaust pipe on the inside is still perfectly clean. It's unreal how clean it is. Yep. Now you're talking something that's even more cleaner yet. Would you would you want to elaborate a little bit on that? What do you think on the younger generation and the incentiveness and that kind of stuff?
3: Yeah, I think,
5: think you kind of hit on a point here, the the you know, I've got kids, teenagers right now myself, and they're growing up in a world that's very different than the one we grew up in. Um, the reality is, you know, the powertrains that we are making—they are—they're they're extremely efficient. They're incredibly clean, and we're pushing the envelope even further with these ne- next generation of regulations. So these technologies, the zero emissions technologies, it's going to become part of their world. Um, and I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. I don't think we're quite at a, a stage where anybody should should panic, because in our lifetime. You know, all of us on this call today, I think what we're going to live through is that transition. And the fact we're living through that transition, it it, it implies that you'll still have those other technologies that you're used to to lean upon as we work through that transition. And there'll be be organizations and there'll be people that choose to adopt some of these technologies earlier. Uh, But make no no mistake about it, when you go to a dealership, you're going to start seeing some of these new technologies offered to you, and one thing I, I can definitively state is when you select some of our new powertrains, I wouldn't be too concerned because they're going to behave and function no different than the ones you have today. It's just going to be a bit better.
4: But, but think about this. I mean, we, we've seen the the driver assistance aids becoming more and more, so we say popular, more and more in demand. Just think about manual transmissions. Yep. I mean, we've <laughs> reached a point in our industry where manual transmissions are almost gone. It's gone, yeah. yeah.
2: That's the part we always I was kind of say, like. What's this kids man growing up? <laughs> <laughs> That's
3: the part we loved. It's, it was it's a, a millennial theft device. <laughs> it's,
0: it's a clutch in the stick. Uh,
3: I, I think about my daughter. You know, she's they grew up in their life revolved around their phone when they were younger. And so they plugged in at night and it charged and software downloaded to it automatically. I think they'll love electric cars and electric uh, because it's going to be like that. It's going to be that simple for them. You know, they weren't doing the oil changes and all the maintenance we grew up doing mm-hmm. and enjoying doing. So I think, you know, you're right. I think there's some some part of this here that the younger people are going to probably, you know, adapt to it even more quickly than we do. But eventually I think most
0: of us will have to. Yeah.
3: the early adopters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're the early adopters. Okay. Peter, the one thing I put in there when you and I had a conversation before is that, you know, in order for us to continue selling the diesel-related products, we're going to need to be successful with the electric vehicles we have The ones we're offering today and buses and and straight trucks and lighter application and utility, um, you know, the more successful we are with that, that gives us, uh, you know, more leverage and more time to, you know, perfect what we need to do in the future. So um, not so much the loggers are going to need electric trucks, but if they're at a city council meeting getting ready to buy one, um, you know, certainly need to support because, you know, as a, we need to have, everybody needs to be selling electric as a percentage of what they sell in order to be keep offering what we do today.
2: So you're telling the folks all there what they need to do. If they, we want to buy the diesels, we need people to buy electric is what you're saying. So, uh, there
4: you go. Bright. Got it, well, guys. Go, folks. We have to
2: we have to wrap it up. Uh, thank you
1: so much, Bob, Mike, Mark, and uh, Darren from Navistar, the company that builds uh, international trucks. We want to thank you guys for giving us a little in- insight into the future. And uh, Peter, thank you for another great mm-hmm. show. We look forward to another one next
2: month as well. Thank you very much, folks, guys from Navistar. Thank you so much, and folks out there, pass it along about listening about the show on podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, guys.